um, uh, in, uh, but uh, you know, with its own uh, problems, set of problems, which is physical culture. That is to say, all those activities uh, which um, for hygiene or entertainment or competitive uh, reasons involve uh, the exercise of the body and how a society uh, you know, value those activities as desirable. That you know, would be something that is very obvious today. Everyone agrees that it's good to exercise and, and live a healthy lifestyle. And I'm interested in how these ideas uh, came to Argentina, how they were uh, uh, um, uh, spread and diffused in society, which groups uh, took them up, um, how they were uh, from where and how they were appropriated from abroad, let's say English sports, for example, right? There's a, there's a big discussion in Argentina about how Argentinians and Brazilians modify, change the way the English played uh, football, for example, right? It's been an ongoing discussion for many years. Um, I, uh, so my, my approach to sports is part of a larger concern with physical culture. So I'm not, I do not see myself as a sports historian. Um, however, however, uh, at, at, it, one which is the point in his life, his or her life, in which uh, the biography in the past somehow you know, influences the work one is doing. So a parallel cu curiosity has led me into uh, writing the history of rugby in Argentina, the critical history of rugby. That is a history that does not celebrate heroes and World Cups, but how an elite sport became a middle-class sport. So, and this is something I've been doing on the sides. Uh, it, it, you know, it's fun. Um, uh, and because I play rugby, then I can speak with a certain knowledge of, of the sport. But uh, you know, besides that, uh, I have been not trained in sports history. So. Uh, I say that in order to, <laughs> uh, you know, for you to consider certain mistakes or uh, generalizations I might make in, in my presentation. So, uh, to round up why, uh, uh, um, why I'm doing what I'm doing now and why this, this topic I'm presenting to you today, I want to explore how ideas about, uh, I want, sorry, I want to explore how ideas about healthy lifestyles and a, a toned body are expressions not only of strategies to accumulate, as Pierre Bourdieu said, symbolic capital in increasingly competitive societies, or, uh, or the desire to shape oneself as a modern human being, that is to say, you know, through rational and efficient man management of the body in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, one could show you know, was a way of showing being modern, uh, being a, you know, a person who uh, was in control of his uh, physical uh, development. That was imp it's important too, but also I'm interested in how sports and physical, uh, and physical culture have, um, uh, uh, have affected uh, notions of citizenship and nation building. Mm? So I'm looking at more at the also, also at the politicals or the politics of uh, people going to the gym. Just to give an example, you know, why people are now buying books uh, of, of how to stay healthy and fit. So within this uh, set of problems, I would like to uh, uh, focus uh, today on the relationship between physical culture, sports included, and medicine, uh, looking at three interrelated aspects. 
One, and this also comes from, uh, if I understood well, uh, an interest uh, uh, of, of Pierre, uh, the popularization of sports in, in, in Argentina and Latin America. So since I something that I think is important to understand the context of my topic. Second, the medical debate on women's physical culture, which has some, certain specific features in Argentina because of what was happening with demographics, you know, with the birth rate. And the, emer last, last, the emergence of sports medicine as a specialized field of applied science. So those will be the th three um, axes of, uh, of uh, uh, um, my, my presentation. So we begin uh, with sports and the, its diffusion, the diffusion in, in Latin America. Sports, uh, as elsewhere, as you know, uh, diffusion, the diffusion of sports, was connected to the modernization of society, like in England and in Europe, to economic diversification, and that came with industrialization, and the emergence of the middle classes. Uh, sports in Argentina and the rest of Latin America uh, were introduced by most, mostly by, Europe, by European, mostly English, in, case, in the case of Mexico, the proximity with the U.S. gave American sports uh, a, a, a prominence which did not have until after the Second World War. It was mostly British sports in the rest of the continent. Uh, it was introduced, these sports, by European, mostly English expatriates. Uh, in the second half of the 19th century. Just to give an example, the first uh, uh, football uh, match in, in Buenos Aires is, re uh, is recorded as having been played around the 1860s. The first rugby match, for example, which rugby and football are very similar, as you know, the, the early history of both sports. A combination. Eh? A, combination. A combination, yes. And then, I mean, the number of players was varied all the time. I mean, uh, uh, rugby was in the 1870s, and this is the same clubs were playing both sports, right? Uh, cricket as, as well, also a very old sport, very er early introduced in the continent, always connected to the presence of British merchants uh, and, and civils, uh, civil, serv civil servants. Um, so in this, this, uh, these nuclear cultural practices gradually spread out from elite clubs and schools into larger sectors of society. Mm -hmm. so to say that, after, especially after World War I, no, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Now this process was by no means uniform. Depends on where you look, you're going to find uh, these, uh, these clubs and, and associate, gymnastic associations much more or less developed according to uh, the, the state of the, the economy and society. But sporting cultures, as a general, I would say as a rule, flourished in those regions well integrated into the transnational movement of capital and people, uh, regions with burgeoning cities, dynamic economies, upward mobility, and important European immigrant communities like Argentina and Brazil. Now, we cannot talk about Argentina and Brazil. We're talking about Sao Paulo, Rio, Buenos Aires, that is to say, big cities with important, uh, with a large middle class, uh, with a modern economy, uh, certainly it's not the case in northern Brazil, the black population, the hinterland, the same as in Argentina, the regions which are more you know, to the west and the north, were kind of isolated from the network, economic network connected to in, uh, the export economy. Now, this process accelerated after World War I, and especially in the 1930s and 40s. 
Partly this was the result of a gradual, uh, I would say this has to be, I would say, an, uh, analyzed case by case. I will give the case of Argentina. As a result of a gradual nationalization between inverted commas, quote, nationalization of, uh, of many sports which before the war had been mostly played by foreign nationals, employees of British railway, banking, and shipping companies. As many of them returned to Europe to fight in the war, World War I, and did not come back, they were replaced by vernacular player, players and, and, and teams. Yeah? Although many of those teams retained their foreign names, like for example, Racing Club, Racing Club, River Plate, Belgrano Football and Cricket. Yeah? They retained their British name for many, many years until in 1954, I'm, we're gonna talk about Perón in, in a moment. In 1954, a government decree forced all institutions to, uh, we, call, we say, castellanizar their names to uh, you know, change their English names or French. There was a, 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 a French, very important French sports club, uh, Sportive Française, which had football, but especially uh, rugby and, and uh, gymnastics. They were forced to, to uh, for a short time, when the government was brought down by a coup, they returned to their old uh, English names. But um, it was a time when this nationalization went when became literal nationalization. The, the clubs, the clubs had to. to uh, 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 changed their names into a Spanish name. Now, um, uh, what, what is most important, I think, the popularization of sports was a byproduct of, of the wartime experiments in Latin America with import substitution and state-sponsored industrialization, which in turn bolstered social mobility and welfare. In Argentine historiography, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s are known as the democratization of welfare a central aspect of which was the expansion of popular consumption and leisure. The sports was, uh, an ex was part of that. Among, among other things, these years witnessed the um, proliferation of recreational institutions, athletic clubs, gymnastics associations, scout groups, and the emergence of a leisure industry, um, such as advertising, self-help uh, self self books, how to stay fit, for example, uh, books and magazines, films, and so on, to cater, to cater the increasing number of consumers of physical culture. So there was a, there was a, um, a market for that, right? And, um, and of course, within this, uh, this um, <coughs> new uh, 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 leisure um, industry con uh, uh, connected to physical culture, uh, the magazines would advertise ideas. You, know, but, well, you could see the ideals of the, of, of the body, of the male body, for example. You know, uh, uh, sports magazines and newspapers start, started to advertise, for example, um, gyms, um, gym classes, or, or, um, or even uh, uh, programs of, uh, of uh, fitness programs that one could do at home with, you know, without leaving the house. Right? Um, of course, you, you, one has to see that also. We'll go, go back to some of these images because there are, there are racial uh, connotations to some of those images, the ones of the, the Greek statues. statues. Um, um, this, um, at the same time, uh, they were circulated among the larger public. We're talking about here of two ma three magazines, two of which, the ones at the top, were uh, you know, popular health magazines. You know, they were uh, sold and, and, and read by you know, middle classes, uh, 
non-experts readers. Um, so uh, since the 1920s, and especially the, the, the two decades, the following decades, more young and middle class people uh, were joining sports clubs to exercise, many more attended as viewers, horse races, boxing fights, and football matches. By the 1930s, those are the only three professional, that is to say, monetized sports. Boxing, horse races, and football. Which meant for many clubs to um, uh, give up their affiliation with a sports federation that only accepted amateur sport. And so you see many clubs that had, that were, most, many clubs were multi-sports clubs. Huh? They had several uh, uh, genres, several activities. They participated in different competitions. But once professional, uh, the professional, professionalization of football set in and became more or less a, a, a fact in the 1930s, these clubs were expelled uh, from uh, other sports federation which uh, made mandatory that uh, a, a, the affiliates had no professional sports in their, uh, in their, uh, in their association. No? So um, this created a, certainly a, a conflict. Some clubs, for example, they, in order to keep uh, practicing the sports uh, that were only accepted as amateur sports, they would create some kind of phantom clubs. It was the same club with another name, but there were players who you know, belonged to this football club uh, many of them, for example, today, many football clubs, people don't know that they used to play, used to participate in many other sports and had to give them up because uh, at the moment when uh, football became professional. So uh, and this, the, the moment, I think, in France is also the 1930s, the moment of, if I, if I read uh, the literature well, in the 1930s is when French football becomes also prof professional. Um, football marron, no? this is they call it, no? This is. 1934. 34. Yeah. So, um, now, one of the uh, features of this process of diffusion was that, was that it was decentralized and autonomous from the state, at least until the, 19, until, until the late 1940s. Autonomous from the state and the political sphere. There's no such there's no uh, official public uh, uh, institution that uh, centralizes sport policy. It, it all pops up uh, as, uh, as part of the civil society. And that shows sports, uh, I think in, in this everyone agrees, in, the, in that sense, the uh, popularization of sports in the 1930s shows uh, the dynamism of a civil society, of the civil society in the interwar years. Huh? In, in fact, at, at, at moments, this is quite chaotic, the chaotic the process. Huh? There's no, because there are no rules, very few laws. As I argued in the paper, in one of the papers, the, 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 the one that will be published, this middle class revolution, I take the term from John James Mangan, uh, a study of British uh, football, British sports in the, in the 19th century. This um, middle class revolution moved forward, see, made progress, despite the authoritarian atmosphere that followed uh, in Argentina the military coup of September 1930. Thus, sports and other recreational activities may have served, this is an argument, a strong argument, we can discuss it, 
sports and other recreational activities may have served as venues for enacting ways of being modern in a society that had its civil rights and political rights restricted. Mm, there was a coup in 1830 that, that brought down the first democratic regime in Argentina. Later in that decade, uh, the, civilian, uh, the government uh, returned to civilian hands, but there were restrictions to whom, to, uh, to whom could run for government. And the main political party, the, most uh, the party most, most democratic, the radicals, were proscribed. Mm? Yeah, although we, there is no war, there's been no war in Argentina, there's been just a process of uh, okay, okay, political crisis within the radical party, and also uh, it showed that the old elites were not ready yet to uh, accept the, 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 the reality of mass politics uh, in the context of the Depression, because it has to be, we have to think about the date, you know, September 1930. Um, okay, so, but also I would argue that international developments also helped to promote sports as a popular pastime. Regional and international competitions, such as the Olympic Games, the South American Track and Field Games, which started in 1919 uh, and uh, were held twice every two years, as well as single sport events, boxing and football especially, later car races, became increasingly important ways, venues, equal to, equal to the annual festivities that celebrated patriotic traditions, in which popular ent entertainment converged with hygienic concerns and political calculations. Uh, These are the elements that uh, one can uh, uh, see working in, uh, in, this, uh, in, in the Olympics, no? for example. Politics, you know, hygiene back then was more important than today, and, uh, and entertainment. Okay, so let me move now to uh, the, the second uh, point, which is the medical debate on women's sports. So within this problem now, I'm going to focus more, a little bit more narrowly on the problem of women and why the problem uh, uh, women's, of women's sports. The popular search for sports elicited ambivalent reactions among socially influential circles. As practices, the sports that offered non-elite groups. Let me put women, regardless of whether they are elite, part of the elite or not, but clearly they are not, they don't have a voice in the society yet, right? So in that sense, I will put them, place them, at least for this moment, uh, you know, uh, within the non-elite non groups. Uh, these practices, sports, offered that, that offered non-elite groups new possibilities that challenged, challenged conventional codes of decorum and respectability, for example, the gentlemanly amateur ideal of fair play. For, uh, um, as this practice offered that, you know, um, popular sports like football appeared in the eyes of conservative commentators as examples of moral debasement and irrational crowd behavior, a view which seemed to find confirmation in the disrespectful, disrespectful conduct of players and fans towards adversaries and the referee. The press is full of that. Uh, there was a brawl, a fight, uh, in the in the in the in the stadium uh, or after the after the game. People, you know, people, people insulted the referee, and the press complains all the time about that. And uh, in, in, the, in in that uh, in that complaint and criti uh, criticism, uh, 
the sport is confused, is merged, and you know, put in the same bag with uh, with the viewers, with the with the fans, with the hooligans. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and then if we, if uh, whenever the press wanted to make this point that foot, football nourishes irrational behavior, they would they would put a big picture of something fights which are, it is not certain that come from a football match. It could be just a brawl in the street between, I don't know, the communist and the fascist. So uh, one has to be careful with the images. Conservative opinion focused their critique on two interrelated evils. The desire to win at all costs, or campeonismo. Campeonismo is a neologism derived from, uh, from the Spanish term campeón. Uh, and uh, the other evil, one was hmm, desire to win at all cost, the other evil was turning sport into a business, or what they call mercantilismo. Uh, so, in the eyes of those who upheld sports above all as moral and hygienic, as a moral and hygienic pedagogy, poor sports uplift individuals, you know, who abide by the rules of sport. These evils corrupted, in their view, the amateur ideal by nourishing a cult of stardom celebrities, no? in contrast to the sobriety that was supposed to be characteristic of the true sportsman, and tainting it, no, the sport, tainting the sport with sp spurious material interests. That is to say, you know, the professional sports person no? who sold his soul, who sold his soul uh, to, uh, no. Um, commercial advertising interest, and there is a play for money. While the critique of prof uh, professionalism and the media creation of sports celebrities may appear as lamentations of dilettante reactionaries, the issue of women engaging in physical activities was an altogether different matter, in this for two reasons. The first was that popular enthusiasm over sports coincided in time with the emancipation of women in the economic and cultural sphere, not political. In Argentina, women did not have the vote until 1949, the new constitution, and did not vote for the first time until 1952. But in the economic and cultural realm, we see them much more, they are much more visible. I'm going into that in a moment. Although Argentina was still a patriarchal society, it was increasingly less so when compared to other Latin American nations, and even with many European ones. More women were entering the salaried, uh, the paid workforce, and were conspicuously visible in the culture industry, especially in the film and the music business. Visibility, visibility is here a key issue. Why? Because the public appearance or representation, portrayal, of female celebrities in the media did not reflect an equivalent redistribution of roles and influence. So it was misleading. The, you know, there are so many women appearing in the press and the movies, but they did, this, did, did, that, that did not reflect a real change in power relations. Uh, and yet, as observers rightly understood it, the fact that women were entering fields which had been, until then, a male preserve like sports, not politics yet, was an indicator of deep changes in the making. Yeah? That is to say that our Argentine society is changing, um, at least uh, maybe not on the surface. 
The second reason was even more important because of its ideological implications. We're talking about um, why uh, uh, the uh, peculiarity of the, of the medical debate on, on women's phys physical culture. The ideological implications. What actually made sports a matter of political concern long before the state turned sports into an instrument of nation building, that is to say, because of what I'm going to develop, sport became political before the state found, discovering sports, a political instrument to, uh, uh, to emphasize uh, the image of the country abroad. Uh, what actually made sports a matter of political concern was the fact that more women of reproductive age, young women, were engaging in physical activities. It was, at, it was at this point that the intervention of physicians placed the debate on a different level. It was not just the rebelliousness of young girls who aspired to live a glamorous life similar to a movie or sports celebrity. The real problem was that women were engaging in activities that could be potentially harmful for their health, so the argument went, and incapacitate them to bear children in the future. Moreover, the desire for personal success could make them pursue activities improper of their sex and thus neglect the reproductive and maternal duties that society expected them to fulfill. This argument, which, based, uh, which was based on physiological and anatomical considerations, but no empirical evidence, gained wide acceptance because of Argentina's peculiar, peculiar demographics. Well, what were these peculiar demographics? In the 1930s, the country, which, suffered, which had suffered ne neither war nor major internal turmoil, had one of the lowest birth rates in the world, pr probably the lowest uh, uh, with Uruguay. Widespread use of contraceptive devices, longer life expectancy, and growing participation in the paid workforce postponed pregnancies and limited the number of births. The closing of European immigration following Mussolini's ban on Italian immigration and the tightening of Argentine immigration policy aggravated the uncertainties over the country's future. Uh, this is important because Argentina uh, based the, the, the economic development of Argentina between 1880 and 1930, that is to say the golden age, uh, was based on the massive import of uh, European uh, immigration, mostly Italians. When that uh, comes to an end in, in, the, in the 1930s, and the lowest point is 1935, 55,000 uh, arrivals, compared to 1.2 million uh, in, the, in the years before World War, uh, World War I. Uh, so the, that, that closure uh, uh, allowed many people to imagine the worst possible scenario. What happens? Well, words you're familiar with, from French uh, demographic uh, discussion, denatalité and depopulation found its trans direct translation into Spanish in Argentine demographic expert discourse uh, uh, in the late 1930s. Hmm? Argentine cult, much like in France, um, in the second half of the 1930s, Argentine population experts and cultural commentators, it's interesting that the language, this technical language, uh, is used by people who have no training 
in either demography or, uh, or statistics. Uh, this is, you know, finds its way into the popular press, and, and so we found this, you know, denatalidad, denatalidad, denatalidad. And uh, everyone knows what it refers to, but would not be able to explain exactly what it means. So it's like you know, the, the births that are not there, huh? something like that. So there you have, if you want, uh, another case of import or uh, circulation of transnational ideas. You know, how French obsession with uh, the birth rate in the 1930s uh, traveled uh, across the ocean uh, and found, uh, found a house, a home, uh, uh, in countries that were experiencing a similar dynamic. That is to say, the slowing, the slow down of demographic growth, not the depopulation, but the slowdown of demographic growth. Um, the view that portrayed women's role and identity as essentially a biological one, that is to say one connected to reproduction, was of course a very old one. But what changed over the years what was, the relative, was the relative importance that theories, different theories, gave to different organs and systems, but always within the same biological interpretive paradigm. Medical opinion, which was overwhelmingly male, there were very, very, very few women in the in, uh, uh, doctors, shifted within this paradigm. Medical opinion shifted between physiological and morphological aesthetic explanations. The first was based on the assumption that women's, uh, women's bodies were intrinsically weak and prone to severe injuries that could affect vital organs, the lungs, heart, uterus, above all, the, the, the uterus. It was only in the 1930s that the, the first empirical research, carried out mostly by women doctors in Germany, discredited the conventional beliefs regarding the alleged incapacity, anatomical or physiological, of the female body to withstand intense physical exertion. The, this research comes out in the late 30s, uh, and it reaches Argentina the, the following decade, but it does not circulate very widely. The other explanation, the morphological aesthetic, was influenced by degeneration theory and eugenics and held that intense physical activity had deleterious effects upon women's sexual external characters. By the 1930s, the belief that high-performance sports made women lose their feminine attributes because intense physical exertion shaped their body build, making them look more masculine. That kind of belief acquired the status of a self-evident truth. Not all experts agree with this environmental explanation of the influence of masculine activities upon women's morphological and psychological makeup. A minority of them, of these experts, held that women with masculine looks and attitudes, attitudes, masculine looks and attitudes, were born with such physical and personality traits. Their athletic inclinations and capacities thus confirmed a constitutional predisposition to undertake manly activities. Um, let me um, pause here to um, uh, talk about one case in particular, which is the case of, um, of uh, Ruth Schwartz, the Morgan Rod. Um, this, uh, um, this uh, woman, she's, uh, she was an expert in, uh, in women's gymnastic and an immigrant from Germany. She was a Jew, a German Jew, that uh, uh, arrived in Argentina in 1935. 
She lived, uh, she died very, uh, quite young, uh, 10 years uh, later, in 45. She had been born in the German Empire before World War I. After the war, she, uh, she uh, undertook uh, various studies um, uh, on, uh, on what she called, what we would call uh, remedial gymnastics. Uh, that is to say, the gymnastic thought uh, conceived to uh, alleviate um, certain uh, pains, especially, she would specialize in that, pregnancy. Uh, gymnastic for pregnant women or that for, uh, you know, after birth, right? women who had given birth. Um, gymnastic Exactly, yeah, exactly. That, that, that would be the term. Yeah. Uh, she, she would talk about uh, gimnasia de reparación, or the comp I'm sorry, the compensation, compensation in gymnastics, but that's, that's, that's the same. Uh, concept. Um, she was not. Uh, she was not a physician. She trained uh, in psychology, uh, and she took uh, several courses in first in Austria and then in, in Berlin, in Vienna and then in Berlin, of uh, this kind of um, uh, therapeutic um, uh, um, uh, specialties, which, as you can imagine, after World War One in Germany were very useful. It was very high, very much in demand especially to, uh, to ensure the rehabilitation of many injured, injured soldiers. Um, she, um, uh, in 1931, she was hired uh, by the Berlin Hospital Charité, where she became, uh, uh, she, she became um, the person in charge of the you know, gymnastic uh, classes for pregnant women. Uh, therefore, that she worked in a, at a maternity, at the maternity of the Charité. Which, ironically, at that time was headed by, a, by who would be the Nazi uh, leader, Führer of the doctors of the, you know, the the Reich Leiter des Arztes, Arztkema. That's to say, the the head of the uh, corporation, the medical corporation under the Nazis. Um, apparently, she didn't have any trouble until 1933 when. She was forced out of her job as a Jew. And uh, first she went to Paris, where she found a job at the Maternité de l'Hôpital Saint Anne for two years. And in 35, she arrived in Argentina, where, the, uh, where the, it existed already uh, a, a, a pretty, impor pretty important German community, German speaking community. Uh, part of it would have be come to Argentina before World War One. Another uh, group had uh, had come uh, had come after the war, and uh, in fact there was also, also a, a, a quite active uh, group of um, German Jews in the communist and uh, the socialist parties in, in Argentina. Although she was she was not political. Now, when she comes to Argentina in 35, 35, 36, 37, she. She's one of the few that has uh, this kind of training, and um, she would find very quickly uh, uh, a space, uh, a place uh, of, uh, of uh, where she can, you know, uh, develop more what she was doing. In um, I don't have a picture there, but this is one of the articles. I want to go back to the article you're seeing here, um, where she could, you know, even more, uh, practice further. Some of the methods of relaxation uh, uh, on, on pregnant and, uh, and childbearing women that she had uh, um, uh, developed in, in, in Berlin at the Charité. She worked very, very briefly in Charité for two years, maybe, uh, not more. 
And she became one of the experts um, in women's gymnastics by the late uh, 1930s. She was one of the experts in women's gymnastics. She create, set up, she created uh, the uh, South American Institute of uh, Feminine and, Ch and, and Child Gymnastics. Um, and um, it was, um, uh, it was um, uh, an institute, uh, sort of school, that offered courses and also published uh, published uh, several books on uh, on women's gymnastics, with the uh, characteristic that um, it was uh, specially conceived. Uh, so it was a set of uh, routine of exercises conceived to be uh, carried out uh, at home without any kind of equipment. Um, she uh, seems to have been the first to introduce the idea of. Uh, um, doing uh, you know, gymnastics with very little, very light clothing. In fact, at some point, I mean, uh, she probably uh, thought, actually she, she said that in, in one place, uh, that the best way to do gymnastics was, was almost no clothing, or maybe just a little, you know, short, or, you know, so, but that's it, you know? Um, the most comfortable, as comfortable as possible. Uh, what one sees in her, in her uh, crossing from Berlin, to, from Germany to Argentina is someone's becoming much more conservative because the society was less prepared. Berlin was very experimental in the 1920s and 30s. But Buenos Aires, even if it was becoming more modern in terms of culture, in terms of you know, sexual roles, was still no, uh, you know, far away from what Germany was exper experimenting. So uh, her, uh, her uh, view, many of her views, earlier views about how women should behave, should conduct themselves, uh, how they should carry out these movements and, uh, and the attire, the, uh, the clothing, um, uh, became more and more conservative as uh, uh, the more she stayed in, in Buenos Aires. So what, the reason why I, I, I paused to, a little bit to talk about uh, uh, Ruth Schwartz, the Morgan Road, is because of her, uh, of her uh, Criticism, uh, for the, on the one hand, her criticism of sports. Uh, she, there she joined, uh, although being one of the few women who published and speak openly about the need uh, to do, uh, for women to do sports. And she funded, she, uh, she argued that, uh, that women had to do, uh, had to uh, uh, stay fit or become fit and stay fit before they, she, they, they, uh, they, um, uh, um, they uh, uh, obtain their political rights. She said, we, we, you know, this is, you know, uh, fighting for the suffrage, which women did not have until, no, until late in the day, the 40s, fighting for the suffrage before women are, you know, uh, you know, in control of their bodies in the sense, in the biological sense, that we become healthy and able to do other things she didn't have. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't have uh, uh, children, um, uh, it, it, it would be to just, you know, uh, inverse the order of things. You know, first we have to look after our, our biological condition and make them, then uh, politics will come as a normal consequence after that. Uh, now, so it, this is one of the, one of the most, uh, I would say, most, one of the most radical uh, articles and he, uh, to, to a certain point also in a way misogynistic because uh, what she uh, the, the contrast she make she makes there is 
the one between the athlete, the women, uh, the woman athlete, uh, the female athlete, and the beauty queen, uh, which is quite uh, <laughs> quite surprising because she was very critical of uh, the uh, this uh, this image of the celebrities uh, advertised by Hollywood and uh, the popular press. She was even very critical of the high heels. And if you look at the look at the, the image of the uh, on the right, the beauty queen. No, she's wearing. She's not wearing very comfortable clothing, at least. I mean, she would say, for example, about the clothing of the beauty queen, that, that that's tight and that's very uncomfortable. Women should wear loose clothes because, you know, they, the, 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 the skin breathes better and, of course, high heels are completely, completely uh, anatomical and anti-physiological. And, and then on the other, uh, on the other side, uh, one, I, one could say, okay, but then maybe these images were put by the editor and not the author. No. I mean, her books, her articles are full of these kind of uh, uh, opposites, huh? uh, that women should not go into sports. That's not for them. That uh, makes them, uh, she would say, that makes them less feminine and that also uh, sports are the, the wrong kind of movement that women need to practice in order to conduct their da daily course. Hmm? Um, so she would, you know, she would uh, come out uh, in favor of uh, a, 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 a gymnastics that was uh, specifically designed to meet uh, a modern woman's needs. Mm -hmm. And what was that? Um, well, the, in, in many other articles, she published uh, 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 many articles in this. In this, uh, this is a magazine, is, uh, Viva Cien Años, one of the most popular uh, health magazines, uh, popular health magazines. Um, she would then have articles explaining how to sit correctly, the idea of the posture. I think I have that. Um, um, No, posture reveals personality. Well, I mean, somehow we all buy into this, right? Stand upright. You know? We tell the children stand upright and walk straight. You know? um, she, I mean, she had. He would have uh, um, uh, pages and pages about the importance of women to uh, uh, how to stand, how to sit. You know? Is the idea of erect posture. It's part of the, it's, it's something of the time. It, 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 that comes from, uh, largely from the United States, where there is a, a, a posture movement, uh, a movement for the right posture. Started, at, started by women, by um, uh, what, we, 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 women who, who were part of the feminist movement, who campaigned in favor of, uh, of uh, you know, teaching women uh, postures, uh, sitting, standing, and so Schwartz, the Morgenroth, is, is part of that. No? Uh, she saw that not just a question, a question of physiology, no? posture, the way we, we, we hold ourselves uh, in public or in private you know, t says a lot about who we are, no? of our personality. And she would use, she would use that, that, that uh, phrasing. No? Uh, the way we talk, the way we sit shows others who we are. No? So it was in a sense, uh, her, uh, her approach to women's gymnastics was, uh, was a way of talking about um, uh, the, the state of our civilization. No? Modern life has, she talked about modern life in the big cities as a sort of de-educating experience. Something, a way of life that for, made us forget 
healthy, healthy way of doing things. And so at, at that point she would put in, in the argument, introducing the argument, uh, pictures of how the, you know, the, the, the yogi, you know, the Indians, uh, yoga, uh, the Chinese, how the, why, the way they, they sit uh, was more appropriate and, 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 and physiologically correct than uh, the way uh, women playing bridge. And she, would be, she, she would have these harsh words about women playing bridge and going to the movies or uh, you know having this social life. Was very, she became she eventually she became very critical of uh, the social life of middle class women uh, in Buenos Aires, mostly in Buenos Aires. So uh, the case of Ruth Schwartz is interesting because also because today she's regarded as a pioneer in all that is related to uh, um, the the, the, the uh, childbearing process, so the healthy childbearing. With you know relaxation gymnastics and you know all the therapies, she also this was a, 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 also a trait of her system. She um, uh, she she um, um, insisted that uh, women should uh, carry out these gymnastic classes uh, in a in a female environment. That the instructor should be a woman, and they should work in tandem of two. Uh, in order to in order to lose to kind of you know get rid of the, the, their shyness, you know, be more open and uh, relax uh, about moving their body. Uh, always, in, in that sense, some people today still consider her as a kind of feminist avant la lettre. Uh, um, although some of her writings uh, kind of you know converge, you know, coincide with. Uh, other more misogynistic and conservative male uh, 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 views. No? But um, so um, that was uh, that was uh, Schwartz again uh, an important figure. She did not have a popular following. I would say her teachings became much more important later. But uh, if we consider that her book, one of her book was was uh, had a preface by uh, the the director. Uh, of the uh, Department of Shooting and Gymnastics of the Army. Well, no, no, the Army in Argentina uh, uh, in the 1930s and 40s, and <laughs> still much later, is very anti-Semitic. To have a general writing the preface of a German Jew, uh, because, you know, um, praising this gymnastics, because this, through this gymnastics, Argentine mothers will become more, will become healthier, and hopefully will, you know, bear out more children. You know? It's, you know, it's an indication of uh, the consensus she managed to uh, 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 you know, uh, get into uh, despite, <laughs> despite her race, her origins. Um, it was not easy for a, you know, a woman, German Jew, uh, to uh, be recognized as an influential voice, at least in her field, especially, especially considering that she was not a physician. You know? She was just a trained um, Gymnastics um, expert. Okay, so to 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 round up uh, the last point, the emergence of sports medicine as a field of applied science. Now, within the medical profession, I've been talking about physicians, and the, the physicians I've been talking about are, let's say, la crème de la profession. That is to say, these are hospital and university doctors, eh? the people who held these chairs, uh, who um, spent half of their day uh, at the hospital board visiting the patients, and the other half they teach, uh, and then they write. And they write about, about many things. Like in France, they write about politics. They are deputies. 
they run for office. Yeah? It's very much a, 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 um, a similar case. No, it's a prestigious profession that opens many doors to public life. Within the medical profession, there was a small group of physicians working as medical consultants in sports clubs, the education and health bureaucracies, and the Argentine Olympic Committee. These are the medical advisors to uh, the, um, the bureaucrats in the, in the committee. Although they shared these physicians with an interest in sports, they shared most of the views of his colleagues uh, in more prestigious positions like universities or hospitals, these early sports physicians occupied a marginal position within their profession. They were interested not so much in these political debates, but in using the athlete as a laboratory to collect information uh, uh, about the physiology, physiology of exercise and develop new, me new methods to prevent accidents and rehabilitate the injured. Their, no, their goal was not yet, as John Haberman pointed out for German sports medicine, the optimization of performance, but for the moment, the preservation of human capacities from fatigue and wearing out. Sports medicine became an organized space devoted to applied scientific research and institutional lobbying in the mid-1930s in conjunction with the vernacular expansion of sports, more people practice sports, more injured, there are more risks, you know, the clubs start to hire um, people with some expertise in uh, sport injuries. The debate, okay, this is what, so in conjunction with the vernacular expansion of sports, the debate on school physical education, I will go back to that in a minute, and the growing role of, med of medical expertise in the Olympic movement. Uh, more and more um, doctors get involved in, uh, in um, both in just checking the conditions of the athletes, but also in studying the athletes. See, you know, their base, their metabolism, what's their metabolism before and after the, you know, the competitions, uh, what happens with the uh, you know, high altitude skis, uh, skiers uh, or swimmers, uh, their you know, uh, res respiratory capacity and all that, rich uh, field of, uh, of, of information for them to, to exploit. And so this, this group grew in importance also by bringing together kinesiologists working on industrial accidents and medical advisors of athletic clubs. Think about it. You know, people working on industrial accidents and you know, sports injuries were talking about the same thing. No? Physiology of exercise, the repair or rehabilitation of damaged tissues, how to bring back uh, a worker or a sports person to its full capacities after, a, after an injury, etc. There's a German word for that that, uh, that works very well, sportliche uh, Arbeit. You know, that's sport-like work, in the sense that it's kind of labor that resembles uh, in its physiological uh, uh, um, uh, aspects um, industrial, the work in the industrial uh, 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 plant. Um, so uh, what happened with this group? Well, in 1935, they, they set up the, the Argentine chapter of the society uh, the, Ar the, Argentine, sorry, the Argentine branch of the International Federation of Sports 
Medicine, which is located today in, in Lausanne, uh, Federation Internationale de Médecins du, uh, uh, du Sport. Um, uh, and for a time, for a couple of years, Argentina is the only uh, Latin American office branch, so it serves as representative uh, in the field of sports medicine for other countries like Brazil or Mexico, Peru, etc. Later in the decade, others will also open their offices. Um, the goals, well, there are at least three goals. One is to, um, uh, to uh, ensure that every uh, institution that offers uh, sports or uh, recreational activities that involve the, uh, physical exercise has have a sport a physician specialized in sport. What was the situation until then? Only very few institutions have uh, a medical officer, and uh, the case was the, for the, especially for the swimming pools because of the contagious contagion. So what they did, the physicians in those cases, was to just examine the skin to see whether the swimmer had any, or the, the person who wanted to go to the pool, who, who uh, had any kind of skin disease. But that was about it. There was no more, no more, uh, no more uh, uh, to be done. Uh, the, the person would just use it. Um, a little different was, of course, the situation in the Army. The Army was the only institution that run more or less exhaustive checkups on the recruits. Mm -hmm. And the Army actually played a very important role in this uh, medicalization of uh, uh, exercise. The second goal, so one of them is try to get the state somehow to uh, make this control, this uh, uh, screening uh, obligatory for uh, inst institution offering sports or recreation, physical recreation. The other goal was to uh, ensure the, uh, the passage of, uh, the, uh, ensure that uh, school physical education became uh, a, a reality, uh, mandatory in all schools of the country. There was a law, but it was not complied with. Mm -hmm. There was already an institution similar to the one created in France, the Institut National d'Education Physique, uh, it was uh, the same name, uh, which trained uh, instructors in physical education and tried to lobby the state to make sure that all public schools, primary schools, would have, uh, the children in these schools would have their uh, weekly hours of physical exercises that were not military drills because what, was, what, what there was before this was just a military drill, you know, like the, the, the Bataillon Scolaire, you know, what they did there in the 1910s and 20s. So um, what they wanted was a gymnastic, uh, which was very much physiological, designed especially for children age 6 to 12 something like that, at least as for the, for the primary school. And so the Society of Sports Physicians also joined with other medical reformers in order to uh, get uh, the education authorities to enforce the, this, kind of, uh, this kind of measures to ensure that children, all children, and not just children, because what the children that enjoy, that had uh, sports of, of, or physical education were those going to private schools especially the English schools. Well, they play football, they play cr cricket, tennis, rugby, whatever. But the uh, situation in public schools was very much different. They didn't have the facilities, they didn't have any instructors, they have army instructors most of the time. And um, the state schools. The state schools. In the, uh, no, it's not the public, British, no, no. The state schools, yes. It's, uh, because the, back then they are national. Uh, they, regardless of where they are, they are national schools. They are, that is to say, uh, you, you, they are um, 
euh, gratuite, c'est-à-dire euh, on paye. Il faut, in, in fact, it's obligatory. The children should go. No, there is a law, public education law. <laughs> the problem in English is public education uh, makes a connection with the British case. It's completely the opposite. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, that's where, that's where uh, the, the middle classes go, right? The children of middle classes. And the third goal is, well, is the agenda, the research agenda. No? Uh, we can talk about that later, but one of the axes of research uh, of, of, this, uh, of this group was um, the uh, constitutional studies trying to, uh, trying to determine uh, the, uh, the uh, relationship between, between body types, morphologically speaking, and the sports best suited to uh, this uh, to these bodies, uh, and uh, what, I, what I'm showing there, uh, it's one one of the actually I think it's the only Argentine taxonomy of uh, morphology of a body constitution uh, um, that um, uh, based on the relationship of uh, the upper body, the trunk, and the legs, and this comes a little bit from it Italy, the Italian constitutional medicine. Uh, again, the idea being that uh, the, the, the outer appearance of the body, the morphology, tells something about the personality of, the, of, of this individual, uh, and, and, and therefore the inclinations to this or that. Uh, what interests me here is uh, the use of statistics and, and, and mathematical formulas to arrive to this image of the, you know, the perfect uh, sportsman. I'm going to stop here. This, this is Grasso, uh, Godofredo, Godofredo Grasso, probably. The, uh, the pioneer in, in sports, med sports med medical research in these years, 30s and 40s, um, is uh, very widely known within this, uh, within, uh, this group uh, throughout Latin America. So that, that's where I'm going. I think uh, the time we have time to maybe take some uh, questions. Um, uh, and well, um, just to give you an example, um, <laughs> We mentioned this, but we didn't go. Uh, um, in the 1940s, with Peronism, that is to say, the government of uh, General Juan Domingo Perón, was elected president in 1946, is, uh, in our history, is, is, well, it's divided. You know, half of the country you know, it's, you know, thinks one thing, another half. I will just try to uh, be as, uh, as, as, as objective as possible. But uh, in, 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 for half of the population today, Perón represents the real democratization, the social an economic democratization in Argentina, but not from uh, a, a democratization from below, but from you know from the top. It's a very nationalistic government. It's a, he's a military, it's a strong man, but that uh, with this uh, with the state that intervenes in almost every aspect of society, and one of them is sports. Um, although it's uh, in a way, well, probably you know, you can associate. In your, uh, in, your, uh, in your head, Peron, this place, this period with Evita. Huh? Evita, this is his wife, but not, not, not vice president, this is his wife, died during his second term. Uh, she was the one who campaigned for, the, for women's vote, and so women's suffrage was introduced in the reformed constitution of 1949, uh, which is uh, it's a constitution with many corporatist elements. Peron was influenced by Italian corporatism, by Italian fascism. And, uh, and then, of course, you would see, one would see, I don't know if we have this image, but Peron as the, um, uh, no, I don't, yes, I do. So, 
General Pomperon, the integral uh, sportsman. Uh, that reminds you of Mussolini, but, you know, uh, uh, driving a plane, riding a plane or a, a motorcycle. Perón was also, as a military, he practiced many sports. He was an accomplished, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, fencing, uh, fence uh, screamer. Uh, um, he was also a good shooter, a sharp shooter. He played, you know, he boxed, uh, he boxed, played, played football, and so. This is this pictures coming from a sports journal, one of the, the most popular and uh, this kind of official sports journal. Shows him you know, performing different sports. And so see, here you have the political sport. The other image was interesting, just as a representation, is the, the place of women in this uh, in this state-sponsored uh, popularization of sports. Uh, um, for the first time now, in the 1940s, sports becomes. Uh, uh, a matter of state concern. That means it, it, it receives money from the state. Now, um, I wanted to show you something before. No, you have Latin America's participation in the Olympics, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the 30s up to the 1950s. Um, you see a kind of saturation of, of participation towards the end. And uh, from top from below, so Argentina take one of, I think it's one of the few countries that participates in every uh, Olympic between uh, 20, uh, 1920 and 18 uh, onwards. Um, now, uh, the question is: Okay, how do these people, how do athletes from Latin America get to uh, Los Angeles or St. Louis or Paris or uh, Amsterdam, London? No? Well, they have to pay that from their own pockets. There's no, no money. Uh, there is actually a, a committee, an, uh, an Olympic committee, and then there will be something called the Argentine uh, Confederation of Sports, but they, you know, they are constantly fighting among each other, and the state, so the state just stays away out of it. Uh, uh, with Perón, uh, I think this is the first time that the, you know, there's an effort, a systematic organized effort to uh, have a, a uh, delegations uh, sent over, uh, and also uh, Perón will, will organize. Argentina will organize many uh, inter, uh, regional uh, tournaments. Actually, the inter international, uh, the world, uh, world, uh, uh, the, world uh, the basket World Cup, the second basket World Cup, is it takes place in Buenos Aires. Something, I think. So, um, uh, to the extent that the the Olympic participation says something about how these societies are changing, um, I think, uh, because it means you need people, uh, several people out of which to choose uh, one or out of which two or three will go there. And you will have to pull resources because even if they are, these people come, let's, let's take the case of Janet Campbell, who is the swimmer who won the, it was the first Latin American woman, woman medalist uh, who won a medal in the Olympics in 1936. It's the only, uh, Um, you have the women's participation in the Olympics. Uh, in 1936, Argentina sends 50 athletes. One is a woman, it's a swimmer. She was a uh, South American champion freestyle, and then she won, uh, she was third, she won the silver medal in 1936. And, and then she told, I mean, she, afterwards she told the story when she was told, not right now, the old person, no? And I mean, she didn't have any money. I mean, These are old, 
uh, 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 all aristocratic families, all of them with foreign last names, um, Jeanette Campbell de Morven, but uh, they can I mean, they barely afford, can afford to go to Europe and spend, I don't know, like two or three weeks. If you go before, you have to train others in three weeks in, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the city Olympic, uh, in, uh, whatever they, they, they go, and this is the first woman who participates in an Olympic. So it's very expensive. It's also 1930s is the Depression. Uh, Argentina had already come out of the Depression, but, but uh, that, that does not mean that people, you know, the uh, ticket to Europe, and I mean, she of course went in third class. She did not go in first class. You in third class, and so she, you know, uh, many others, you know, they they went with you know, saving their pennies, you know? uh, and uh, many year after year, the Olympic Committee, uh, the Argentine Olympic Committee, which is run more or less like a personal fifth by uh, 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 an individual, try to get uh, the, 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 the the little budget. You know? from the annual expenses, and the Congress says no. I mean, partly because still Olympics is not, does not have the weight that has, would have later, but also because there are at least two institutions that are fighting uh, each other. And also, also because of something I said before, this is, these sports are something that you know, spring from above and uh, you know the federations, the Olympic Committee, is, you know, not always can communicate with the different sports federation. That is to say, uh, it's not seen yet as a, a trustworth, trustworthy representative of the country in the sports arena. That will change with Peron when sports become part of uh, part of the state, uh, you know, a matter of state. Because why? Well, because through sports, people, you know. A country that, that is industrializing, that needs a healthy workforce, sports fulfill an important hygienic uh, goal. Second, sports serves to mobilize the ba social basis of support for the regime. That is to say, the lower middle classes, the popular classes. You know, we bring, we create, uh, and still to this day, many of the swimming pools, and gyms, large gyms, you know, are dated from that time. Huh? It was a major investment in infrastructure. And third, sports, especially with the Olympics, but not only with the Olympic, move, uh, Olympic game, becomes a, 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 um, a stage where the country can, can show hmm, how civilized it's becoming insofar as sport is seen as a tool of civilization, as a degree of civilization. So it's a diplomatic uh, instrument, uh, more and more so uh, as years uh, go by. Okay. I will start.